Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53, says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When Mary found out that she was to be pregnant with Jesus and then she went and traveled and visited Elizabeth, she responded in this way to Elizabeth. She said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. When Mary first realized that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, she celebrated. She was confused a little bit at first. How can this be, seeing as I know not a man? And she was confused about what how it would take place. But as far as whether she was open to God using her in that way, she was fine with that. In fact, she celebrated that when she went and visited Elizabeth and they talked about it. As we look at this passage before us today, you'd almost expect something similar. Jesus at the time of his birth is he was born in Bethlehem. And then shortly after that, Joseph was warned in a vision that Herod was seeking after the child's life. And so he fled into Egypt and stayed in Egypt for a little while. And then when it was safe to come back home, they came back, but were still a little bit leery of uh, the Bethlehem area. And they headed up to Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up. So he wasn't born there, but he did grow up there for most of his life. And so it was considered his hometown. And so he's going back to his hometown. And if you can imagine what the celebration would be like or what the notoriety would be like, for somebody famous coming back to your hometown. Can you imagine if, if Little Fork had somebody that made notoriety in one way or another that way and then it came home for a visit? I think it would be kind of an exciting time. Uh, the town would be kind of proud. Well, that's what's going on in Jesus' life at this time. He's been rejected by the Jewish leaders and this time up in Capernaum in the areas that had seen most of his miracles even. But now he goes and he leaves from there and he goes back to his hometown. Now, he'd had a conflict in his hometown prior. If you read in Luke chapter 4, you find that Jesus went to the town of Nazareth once before. And when he got there, they did kind of get a little bit excited about him at first. But he pointed out to them what was in their heart. He says, I know that you're going to speak the parable to me or the proverb, physician, heal yourself, which is what people would kind of speak to him as he's on the cross eventually. He says, I know that a prophet is accepted everywhere except for in his hometown. And he just pointed out what was in their heart. He says, you're going you're gonna to ask me, do the miracles here that you've done in Capernaum. In other words, what he was telling them was that they weren't going to accept him. They weren't really interested in him as their Lord and Savior. They would not accept him that way, but they did want to see some of the show. They did want to see some of the miraculous things that he was doing in other places. And when he pointed out to them what was really in their hearts, they proved it. Because they grabbed him by the arm and tried to drag him out and throw him off a cliff. But he got away from them. Last time he'd gone into the synagogue to teach, and, and this time he goes, goes into the, his hometown and he does the same thing again. And it says that they rejected him, that they're insulted by him. We see in this passage one more example of unbelief. As we look at this passage, we're going to look at four characteristics of unbelief as we examine it this morning and their response to Jesus Christ. But I find it amazing in the context that we've been looking at, with all the miracles that he's been doing and mighty things, 
but there was still unbelief. We've firmly established by this point in our study of Matthew that unbelief was not caused by a lack of proof, a lack of evidence. There was plenty of that right before them, but people still were persisting in their unbelief. This time, not just strangers, not just religious leaders. This time, right from Jesus' hometown, he faces more unbelief. Well, let's get into it. The first characteristic of unbelief that we see evidenced in this passage is that unbelief ignores the obvious. It ignores the obvious. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. And when he comes to Jesus, he says, we know that you're from God because nobody can do the miracles that you're doing except God be with him. Nobody can raise the dead. People don't cause the blind to see, the lame people to walk. People don't heal the sick, cleanse lepers. Something else has to be involved here. Nicodemus says, it has to be God. Other people in the crowds We've seen recognize that about Jesus. The people in the crowds were saying, Don't, do our leaders not realize that this, this must be the guy? Some people were asking the question, when the Messiah does come, will he do more than this guy's doing? It's, it's got to be him. But with all that proof there, they still were solid, rock solid in their unbelief. But it's no different today. There is no shortage of proof. We're coming right up on Easter and looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what? There is no shortage of proof of what Jesus Christ did and of his resurrection from the dead. It's a historical event. You realize you can learn everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ from other sources other than the Bible, historical documents. We can find out about his death on the cross and his proclaimed resurrection from the dead. You know, when you look into the New Testament alone as a, as a historical document, I don't even, and you look through and you see all those apostles willing to lose their life over the fact that the, just for one fact, we saw him killed, we saw him alive. Just the, for the fact that he was risen again from the dead. And you look into that and you say, you know, some people come up with various theories. Well, maybe he didn't ever really die. He just passed out on the cross, got a little bit of three days rest in the tomb, woke back up feeling refreshed, pushed the stone out of the way came out of there. Hardly enough to inspire the faith that the the apostles... And not only that, what happened to them after that? That's called the swoon theory. Some have come up with the idea that the apostles stole the body. They stole the body and made up the resurrection story. Is that really possible? Eleven people conspired together to make this story. And then of those eleven people, every one of them willing to pay for that with their life even though they knew it was a lie? You know, I've read uh, books and parts of books and articles and stuff by people involved in law enforcement and the judicial system. You, it's hard to get two people that make up a lie together to cover their own tracks. It's hard to get two people to stick to the story. And some of the experts have said it's impossible to get 11 people to stick to a story that's not even doing them any good, but bringing them harm in their life. It's absolutely impossible to get 11 people to stick to the same story all the way to their death when it doesn't even bring them wealth or fame. It just makes them hunted people and brings them persecution. There's an abundance of proof to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason people don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't because there's no proof. It's because they're just persisting in their unbelief. Their heart is hard. I've on many occasions talked to different people about the resurrection or talk about Christianity and they say, hard time believing that. And and sometimes I've gone out and bought people books. Buy them books and give them the book to read. And you know what? And then I'll ask them later, hey, what did you think about that book? And I found that sometimes they'll read part of the book, sometimes not really any of the book. The point is they're not really interested in the facts or the evidence. They're just comfortable in their unbelief and they're persisting in it. Well, that's what we see with 
Jesus' hometown. Jesus goes back, back to Nazareth and they see it. They even ask the question. Look at the passage there. It says, when Jesus had finished, he went back to, to his hometown. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So they're listening to his teaching. They're seeing his mighty works. They're acknowledging that it's wisdom and that it's mighty works. They're amazed by his wisdom and the things that he's doing. It's right in front of them. It's the same thing that was right in front of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said, that's God. That's got to be God. It's obvious that this is God. Nobody can do these things without God. The people of Nazareth, did they respond like Nicodemus? No. Astonished? Yes. Faith? No. But then not only does it ignore the obvious, it focuses on the irrelevant. Because notice that's exactly where they went next. They went to a topic completely irrelevant to what's going on in front of them. What was their response? Jesus' family. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, and then it names them James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? You know, there really is no point to this. Now, if you're going to go a little bit to Mary, which they don't go this route, there's, there's a couple ways that they can go. One is, what's his genealogy? Because the Messiah was supposed to come from the lineage of David. As we learned in Sunday school this morning, God's covenant with David guaranteed that his son would sit on David's throne. And it would be from David's lineage. So he's got to be connected to David. Well, if you read earlier in the book of Matthew, we find that through Joseph, Jesus traces his lineage back to David. If you read the Gospel of Luke, through Mary, Jesus' lineage traces back to David. So no matter which of his parents you trace his lineage through, he goes back to David. But you know what? Nazareth isn't concerned about that at all. That's not what they're thinking about. That has nothing to do with it. So what does, what does it have to do with the fact that those are his parents? I mean, they were expecting that at some point the Messiah was going to come and that he would have a family, right? The only other thing that they could uh, possibly be thinking about is the virgin birth. Because we know from Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 14 that it had to be a virgin birth. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And so Jesus had to come from the lineage of David through a virgin birth, through Mary. But you know what? Nazareth didn't, wasn't thinking about that either. That wasn't what was on their mind. So what was on their mind about Jesus and their family is they're just saying, ah, oh, it couldn't be Him, right? I mean, we know where He comes from. We know... We know his, his mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters. Ah, it couldn't be him. It's completely irrelevant who his family is. The Messiah is going to have some, some family in Israel is going to be the family of the Messiah. It, but nah, it can't come from our town. It can't be somebody we know. That was their whole line of thinking. And it has, what does it have to do with it? Absolutely nothing. I would say what they're hearing from Jesus and what they're seeing Jesus do has everything to do with the situation. Who, where Jesus came from as far as his family has nothing to do with the situation. But they're focusing on the irrelevant. Throughout history, we've kind of done that. Through our church history. The Catholic Church is still fixated on a lot of it today. You know, the facts, uh, when you look at Mary and look at their focus on Mary and some of the things that they believe about Mary... They're still fixated on things that are, that are very irrelevant to the situation. 
One of the things that they believe about Mary that is pretty much exclusively the Catholic Church is they believe in what's called the Immaculate Conception. What the Immaculate Conception means, some people are confused about it. Some people think it's the Immaculate Conception of Christ, that he was born without original sin. But that's not what it's referring to. The Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is referring to the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And so what they teach is that when Mary was conceived by her parents, that God, through an act of grace, based on the future work of her son Jesus Christ, intervened in a gracious way in Mary's life, and Mary was born sinless. And then she would continue, she would have no original sin, and she also would continue and have no personal sin, although some of the scholars debate on whether uh, when the Bible says, and a sword will pierce your soul also at Jesus' birth, there was a prophecy about that, that when Mary was below the cross of Jesus, maybe she had a doubt and that was her sin to be redeemed from. Others look at it and say, well, maybe it was when Mary and Jesus' brothers came to get him. When Jesus was doing some teaching and had a crowd stirred up and they thought, let's get him out of there. They thought he was kind of going crazy. They didn't really believe in him yet. And so they went to get him out of there and they look at that act of Mary as maybe being an overreach and that she committed a sin right there. There's nothing in the Bible about Mary's. In fact, there's very little in the Bible about Mary. But there's certainly nothing about an immaculate conception, Mary being born without original sin. Why would they go to this? Well, it's because they're looking at Jesus' birth. And they're saying Jesus is born. He's sinless. He's our sinless Savior, our, our Messiah. But Jesus is born by God, but He's also born by Mary. So in order for Jesus to be sinless, maybe Mary needs to not have sin. And so they go back a generation. And you know what? It just clouds the issue. The issue isn't really Mary. The issue is Jesus. And if you're having a problem thinking, how can Jesus be born sinless if he has a sinful mom? And I don't mean sinful in the way we usually word the sinful, but the fact that she's a, she's a sinner like the rest of us. But how can Jesus be born sinless if he had a sinful mom? If that's a problem for your way of thinking, I don't see how it's solved by going back to Mary and saying, well, Mary was born, she had a sinful mom and a sinful dad, but she was born without sin. If you can't believe that Jesus was born sinless because God's his father, but he had a human mother, how does somebody that had a a human mother and a human father become sinless? It just seems like you just made it harder, not easier. But the point is, that whole idea is irrelevant. It's not about Mary and Mary's sinlessness. It's about Christ. In Christ's sinlessness. They did the same thing with her virgin birth. And this isn't limited to Catholicism. They are probably the loudest speakers of it. But Martin Luther held to this. Um, some Reformed uh, believers believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And you have a real problem with that when you get into the Bible because the Bible talks in a few different places of Jesus' brothers. And the Catholic Church has decided to answer back to that and say, well, that means brothers in a loose sense. You can use the word tr- brother to talk about a, another relative. Um, you can use the word brother to talk about a teammate or, you know, Somebody else that's kind of on your same side, a friend. And so brother can be used loosely like that way. The Catholic Church has, in some instances, said, well, those aren't really brothers, they're probably cousins. But they have a word for cousins in the Greek language. In fact, it's used of Barnabas and his cousin in the book of Acts. And not only that, but it's specifically talking about Jesus' immediate family right here in this passage. And it doesn't just say brethren, it actually calls them by name. It's pretty clear that Mary did not remain a virgin, that she had other children. Now, some that like to hold to that idea of perpetual virginity say, well, actually, that they believe that Joseph was an old widower at the time that he married Mary. And so he had already had children that he was bringing into the family with himself. 
and so that she remained a virgin throughout her time. But even the wording of Scripture, Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 says, When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So in other words, he did not have physical relations with Mary until Jesus was born. But if you start reading into Mariology and looking into some of these practices, the Immaculate Conception was really, I was reading through the Catholic Encyclopedia about it, and they were looking for scriptural authority, and they admit right in the encyclopedia, they said this really doesn't have any scriptural authority. The Bible doesn't teach us explicitly anywhere. And then they went into the early fathers, and they said, well, the early church fathers seemed to be very quiet about it. They didn't really seem to talk about it. And so they don't have any real evidence for this from church history or from the Bible. In fact, it was really uh, Pius IX in 1854 is where the first real solid proclamation about this, the Immaculate Conception, came out. Perpetual virginity of Mary. There's one document in the second century after Christ that made a comment, but it did not explicitly say that her virginity was perpetual. It came short of that. Uh, other than that, it's not until about the 4th century that this idea start to, started to become popular and where people started to insist on Mary's virginity being perpetual. You get into all of that and you look back and you say, why? It's got nothing to do with it. It's got zero significance. You see, the point is Christ being the Son of God. In order for Christ to be the Son of God, He had to be born of a virgin. In other words, He couldn't have both parents be human and be the Son of God. And so what is important is not the Virgin Mary. What is important is the virgin birth. Let's look back at that passage in in Isaiah. Notice what it says. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You notice what's important there? Is that... What is important is the offspring. What is important is the child. The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And what is important is him. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's what Matthew points out as this verse is quoted later in the book of Matthew. When we get up into chapter 1 of Matthew, it quotes this verse. He shall be called Emmanuel. Well, what is she going to be called? doesn't matter. It's not about her. It's about Him. It's about the Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world. Mary's not perpetually a virgin. The Bible makes it very clear. Even lists her sons by name. And the whole point is that that has nothing to do with the point. It's the virgin birth that's important because it's Jesus Christ that's important. But what isn't the people of Nazareth doing? Now, they're not bringing up the virgin birth. They're not bringing up the genealogy. Those are things that would have mattered. What they're bringing up is, well, he, he can't be from here. We, we wouldn't know the Messiah when he came. He wouldn't come from our neighborhood. Yeah, he did. They're doing the same thing by pointing out the family that uh, the woman at the well did. Remember when Jesus in John chapter 4 comes across the woman at the well? And he engages her in a conversation. And he t- offers her the living water. Offers her salvation. What is her first response? Her first response is, you know what? You Jewish people say that you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And we say that our Samaritan people say you're supposed to worship over here, up here. And you know what Jesus' answer is? It doesn't really matter. It's not relevant. He says you're going to find it neither on this mountain nor that mountain, neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain. 
are you going to worship? But God is spirit, and he's, those that he wants to worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's whose God is seeking to worship him. So Jesus is prevented, presenting himself to her as, her as the Messiah, as the Redeemer, and she brings up this irrelevant thing about where are we going to worship, and Jesus tells her, but it doesn't matter, I'm what matters. That's exactly what Nazareth is doing. Nazareth brings up something that is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter at all who his family is. What matters is what you're seeing in front of him. What matters, what matters is Christ. And they're completely missing it. They're continuing in their unbelief. Well, not only do we see that in unbelief we ignore the obvious, we focus on the irrelevant, but it's also arrogant. Unbelief is very arrogant. I see that in this passage by the next phrase after that. Because it says, and they took offense at him. And I find myself looking at that just a little bit bewildered because they're astonished. They're amazed at the things that he's saying. So in other words, the teaching is good. It's it's amazing what he's talking about. It's amazing to listen to this guy teach. They describe what he's doing as mighty works. They said he's doing amazing things. This incredible thing is happening right before them. Now, I can see them being shocked. I can see them being entertained. I can see them being A lot of different things, but the Bible says, you know what they are? They were offended at Him. I often see the irony in the religious leaders trying to put Jesus to death. Here you've got a guy that comes in, and we've seen his teaching as we've looked through the Sermon on the Mount and the parables. And what has he taught? He's taught true holiness. He's taught a true spirituality, a sincere belief in your heart. Not doing this openly religious thing out in front of a crowd to get attention, but being real. A real relationship with God in your heart. He's taught that don't, not just kill people, just, but don't even hate people. He's taught love your enemies. Be kind to those who mistreat you. He's taught a faithfulness in our relationships that is unequal. He's taught all these amazing things. And then what has he done? Okay, he's made lame people walk. He's helped blind people. He's helped lepers, cleansed leprosy. He has risen people from the dead. He has fed multitudes. Talk about feeding the hungry program. He's fed multitudes of people on one small boy's lunch. Now, doesn't that just sound like the kind of guy you don't want in your community? I mean, he's done all these incredibly good things. How can you be offended at that? How can you be upset with somebody that that's his life, doing doing all those good things, teaching us real truth, but they are completely offended at him? Why? Well, I can only come up with one reason. The Gospel of John talks about it explicitly. It says in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, it says, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, there's a, there's a darkness in our hearts, there's a darkness in our sinfulness that Jesus, being the light of the world, exposes that. And having Him in their presence expose the wickedness of their own hearts and the sinfulness. And that goes contrary to Jesus' teaching because He points out that we need to be sincere in our hearts of loving devotion to God and exercising faith toward Him. And when His light shined, it's just like when you go in a room and it's a completely dark room and you hit the lights and it hurts your eyes. When our unrighteousness is confronted by the righteousness of Christ, it hurts. It hurts our pride. And we'll either go one of two ways. We'll either be humbled and turn to Christ in, in saving faith or we'll go the other way and spurn Him and take offense at the very idea 
of him. You see, their offense is not necessarily just in the things that he was saying and the things that he was doing. Their offense is in who he is. Because who he is stands out in stark contrast to what they are. And they're offended by that. I've shared the gospel with people that have given me this response. As I share their need for Jesus, say, look, you're you're a sinner, you've sinned, you've done things wrong. And they usually gladly point that out. They'll say, yeah, I acknowledge that I've done some things wrong. I've broken. You don't even have to get out the Ten Commandments to walk through them with them. Everybody knows they're a sinner. But I've talked to several people that have come to this conclusion. If God doesn't accept me how I am, then I guess I'm really not interested. What arrogance. The Bible makes it very clear that just who you are is very sinful, very corrupt, very evil. In fact, we're we're so corrupt that we don't even feel like we're corrupt because we're just so used to it. And that we're only accepted in the Beloved. We're accepted in Jesus Christ. You read through the book of Ephesians, the whole theme of it is in Christ. That in Christ we have redemption. In Christ we have forgiveness. In Christ we have acceptance before God. We need a mediator. There is only one. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us there is only one mediator between God and man. But we need Him. It's the man Christ Jesus. When He died on that cross, He bore our penalty in His own body on that tree. Why? To redeem us. We need Him to be accepted by God. And the arrogance of somebody that says, you know what, God just needs to take me as I am in my, all my sinfulness and everything, or I, you know what, I'm not that interested. The arrogance that would throw that back in the face of God. You can't take your sinfulness with you into heaven. You take your sinfulness with you into hell as we looked at last week. And you're not accepted. But that's what's happening at Nazareth here. All those amazing things that he was saying, astonishing, mighty works, and they reject it. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles. What's the point that he's making? People that, be- that don't believe are pretty bent on unbelieving. And the simpleness, the simplicity of the gospel, that Jesus died for you and you can have life in him, is a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. Well, lastly, we see that unbelief also blocks God's work. We see that they ignored the obvious. The things were right in front of them. They focused on irrelevant things like his family and such. It had nothing to do with the situation. They also were arrogant in the way that they were offended by the things that Jesus did in his presentation of them needing him as a Savior. And the last thing that we see is that this unbelief blocks God's work. Now, to say that, I don't mean that that God lacks the power. God has the power. Jesus could have performed miracles. That's very obvious. But what we do read in the passage, it says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So, again, it's not limiting the sovereignty of God or the power of God. He absolutely could do whatever he willed to do. He does not will to do much work where there is not faith. We've seen a lot of things this point accomplished through faith in the book of Matthew alone. We've seen a servant healed, a daughter raised from the dead. Jesus, in response to people's faith, did much. But Jesus in Nazareth, when he gets in his own hometown, where he should have seen an uprising of faith, where there is rejection, where there is unbelief, it is the will of God not to do many mighty works there. So exactly the thing that the unbelieving asked for, as we noticed earlier in Matthew. When the unbelieving says, we want to see a sign, God typically responds, there will no sign be given. Except for this one, and it's his own resurrection from the dead. When the unbelieving demands miracles, demands proof, he says, nope, you've already been given enough proof. The issue isn't the amount of proof. The issue is what's in here. 
And you know what? Not believing, not trusting. I think of even in a practical sense in a Christian's life that comes into play. In the book of James chapter 1, the Bible tells us that as we go through these different trials in our life, that we should count it all joy because God's working good in our life. He's strengthening us through those trials. But then it goes on to offer us wisdom. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But he goes on to say, you've got to ask in faith. You've got to trust him. Otherwise, you're unstable in all of your ways. You're like a wave tossed in the wind. He said, that person is unstable. You won't receive anything of God if you don't ask in faith. That's what God always requires of us. With everything that he asks us to do, with everything that he's commanded us, given us to believe, he asks for the same response, faith. It's the same thing that we failed to do in the garden. Adam had a choice. Believe God and what God told him about that tree or believe Satan and what Satan told him about that tree. And Adam chose wrong. He trusted the serpent over God. That's been our problem ever since. And it's also the remedy ever since. God is looking for people who will trust, who will put their faith in Him.